before we begin. Let us all take a moment to pay homage to the Magnificent One, the Unvanquished, the Undefeated One, the Infinitely Merciful and the Infinitely Compassionate One. He who teaches the path to redeem all sentient beings in 10,000 world systems, reminding ourselves how fortunate we are to be so close to him, his teaching, and his congregation of the Mahasangha, reminding ourselves that this is the perfect opportunity for all of us to free ourselves from all suffering. Let us make a firm resolve and an affirmation as we pay homage to the Supreme One. Namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa we are almost at the end of another year. In fact, between now and the end of the year, we'll only meet like this one more time. Because next week we don't have a sermon, as is an ordination ceremony. Sixteen young men. How old is young? When you're old enough to do this, that is young. When you're too old to do this, that is old. So how about all of you? Old or young? Hmm? Yeah, indeed. So you must do whatever you can to remain young. Hmm? Eat the healthy foods, what is it, carrots, whatever the fat is. Do whatever you can to remain young. But remaining young is obviously not, in this context, not something that happens with the physical body, although to try and keep yourself reasonably fit is a responsibility that you all have towards yourselves. Because if you begin to suffer unbearably physically then especially the initial part of your practice can become a little bit difficult because in the initial part you need to build some mental resilience and that can take that will that may require your ability to focus on the Dhamma and its application and sometimes if you are always in pain or you are physically unwell and unfit then you will always find yourselves either in bed, ailing, crying for help and you won't be able to focus on the Dhamma. That is the only reason. Otherwise, age really is not a barrier or a gap to attain the, to attain the Because it is 
being young at heart, being young for this objective, for this purpose, that is what is required. Therefore, what is the maximum age you can be when you when time is up and you can no longer attain Nibbana? What age is that? What's that magic number? <laughs> huh? Matters not whether you are 7 or 70. If you don't have the attitudes, if you don't have that mental stamina and that spirit that remains ignited within your hearts, that burning desire to free yourselves from suffering and to do as much of that as possible for others, then you are all too old for Nibbana, if you don't have that. On the other hand, if from the moment you open your eyes in the morning to the moment you shut them at night, there's only one thing that is ever in your mind, always focused on that. You go about doing your day-to-day chores, you go about fulfilling your duties and responsibilities, serving your family, serving your workplace, serving your country, serving the world. But, at the back of your mind, you're all doing that. Doing all of that with one purpose in mind. May everything I do for others, may everything I do help me, guide me, push me, propel me on my path to Nibbana. And you do it mindfully. And perhaps I might talk to you a little bit more about what this being mindful is all about. Because it's become a very trending topic these days, someone told me. So... Everyone's trying to be very mindful. Which is good. I'm not mocking. I just, I just like to put some more meat around the bone with this mindful business. So we might talk a little bit about what that involves today. What is it to be mindful? And what is it not to be mindful? So if you are that kind of person, then you're all still very, very young. That is good. So, next week, we don't have the talk because we have 16 young men who will be entering the sasana. And I hope you'll all be there to enjoy, rejoice, and pass on your blessings. Do remember, although you may not be able to, but I know you can, you'll appreciate what I mean by this, that they're all sons. They have been sons to all of you throughout this journey in samsara, you got to wonder why you feel like you want to be there. There's a reason. There's, the, there's a reason why there's a tug at your heart. There's a reason why you feel your presence there is going to make a difference. Because you've always been there. You may not remember, but you've always been there. You and I and them, we've always been there. So your blessings will certainly make a difference. For some of them, the funny thing is, for some of them, at least one or two of them, off the top of my head, sometimes their so-called closest family in this reincarnation are not really very keen on attending that ceremony. Funny that. <laughs> the one and final opportunity you get to see the best happen for your child and sometimes, you know, 
it does not uh, does not float their boat but i don't think even they will feel that they are in the presence of strangers and certainly they won't feel that they have been betrayed by their family because their family from many many times in sansara will be there around them to help them look after them guide them to bless them to encourage them and to inspire them that is what we are all about one for all and all for one indeed so i really look forward to the ceremony and hope you will be there as well sometimes you want to you don't want to say a lot about them until they make that final step you don't know what sort of trouble <laughs> they we we bring upon themselves by telling everyone that they are here oh you have no idea folks all the stories and all the obstacles that we have to jump just to try and get someone across the line to hold their hand and come on put come on put come on put you can do it put <laughs> sometimes it's not them sometimes it's their you know people with whom they've had fixed deposits and i don't mean money i i mean sansaric transactions long term fixed deposits long term loans again i don't mean financially financial things they have to settle before they are given permission but these are long wound sansaric transactions which are incredibly difficult sometimes to navigate through so therefore we are sometimes very careful about showing the world outside who we have as anagarikas and anagarikas until you know it is their fate is sealed and then after that there's not really much that can be done when you are across the finish line at least you know conventionally and then after that it's down to them however they manage themselves and see them through to the end of the actual the ultimate finish line but you of course now privileged to be with us and i hopefully you will be here so yeah next week there's no sermon so i think the final week which is the 31st yeah so that's nice the 31st we have in fact i think all of you are ex- relatively very privileged and fortunate because you'll have a full days in packed program in the morning you will have this talk and then towards the afternoon we're going to have the uh, karmastana sajjana you've been informed haven't you yes met shanti karma so there will be as we did last last year i think that happened online yeah so this time you'll be able to be here with us in person and join in that and take part in that where you'll be doing a lot of mindfulness practicing so it will be it's quite timely that we are talking about it today might be might come in handy and then the following morning which will be the dawn of the new year we will have the alms giving for 100 monks to mark the fact that there are now 100 monks at our monastery all your sons and your 
blood, sweat and tears that have brought them all this far. It's incredible, really, to think about how when I first arrived at this monastery, I had to find, I have to actually pave my way up to the Sangha Vasa because it was all muddy and it was all just a thicket of a forest. There were many visitors to greet us uh, crawling on the ground. They're called leeches, waiting to suck your blood. And uh, I thought that was a foretelling of things to come. <laughs> and so we had to navigate our way among the leeches. And uh, it, was a very, it was very muddy. It was a rainy day. And there's pools of water everywhere. This place was very different. Very, very different, you can imagine. Myself and nine others, preceded by Guru Thero, and we walked up to the Sanghavas. We were hoping to see a palace. It was more like a hut. <laughs> so we made a palace out of it. You know, I'm just kidding, right? But what there was, was a half-built building. We had concrete blocks on which was laid a plank of wood, which served as our beds. And that would remain to be the case for several months. It wasn't like the next day all that changed. It was like that for really a considerable period of time, and we had no problem with that. The only thing we probably had, a, had an issue was this building, it didn't have any windows. And neither did it have any doors. The doors didn't matter too much. But the windows did a bit, especially because this area, it receives quite a bit of rainfall. And it's quite gusty when it does. So, sometimes we used to go to sleep at night forever remaining hopeful that in the morning we will still be dry enough to go and have a wash or a shower because on some occasions you didn't have to bother. <laughs> when you wake, woke up in the morning you were all showered and all you had to do was go, in and, go and get a change of robes and then brush your teeth and come down for the arms after the Buddha Puja. So uh, that was the fond memory of our beginning. And as I said, that remained the case for a considerable period of time. And I remember we didn't have Guru Thero sermons like we do now back then. He used to travel quite a bit, go around the country preaching the Dhamma to Anuradhapura and Sigiri and Polonnaru and here, there and everywhere. And sometimes we wouldn't see him for several weeks on end. And we had to make do with, uh, we were given these voice recorders. Yeah, even I had one. So they were about this size. About that big. And you know, Guru Thero's sermons are how long? About half an hour, 45 minutes, right? 
ನಾಟಿವನ ಪುಣ್ಯ ಅನುಮೋದನೆ ಆಗಿದ್ದಾರೆ these mp3 players they had about half an hour worth of charge on them <laughs> and to top all that off we didn't have charges <laughs> or even if we did you know they were either because the uh, electricity board they hadn't completed their work by that point and sometimes to charge we'd had to bring our chargers all the way from the sangavasa to the dharmashala and then you'd have to plug it in and everyone else had to wait so you can imagine there was a queue for the for the charging station so we used to we used to uh, we didn't have a special separate sermon for the swami nuances back then like we do now it was all the same what you got we got and what we got you got and we used to play back those sermons and 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 also the other funny thing with those voice recorders were you couldn't stop them and resume them from the from the point you stopped so if you ever decided to stop listening to a sermon at least briefly to maybe go to the washroom and if the battery ran out by the time you got back you'd have to start again <laughs> and it didn't have a display either so there was no indication of how much of the sermon you'd listen to already so it was anybody's guess right? and sometimes you just have to hit the keep hitting the password button and at one point you just give up and you go oh, sorry just start from the beginning <laughs> so those days we used to do a lot of samantha chakravali so <laughs> at the monastery and and very few punyanamodana <laughs> So yeah there you have it that's how things started and then the valley malo that is today just used to be uh, a makeshift valley malo which is where guru hamdro used to go to rest and as i've always done i used to follow him like his pet puppy hanging by his robe and we used to go and that is that was where we used to rest and there was a just a, a small area you could walk up and down and it was stood up by four logs of rubber trees and on top of that was some tar sheets that kept us from the harshness of the weather and so when it used to rain again we didn't have to bother showering and when the sun was out we knew the sun was out very much so and oh then there were our best friends yeah <laughs> so they helped us a lot in the initial stages of our practice to practice compassion <laughs> we were only so lucky that none of us ended up with dengue or malaria or whatever and then came nets mosquito nets but then the mosquitoes kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller 
They were so determined, <laughs> one way or the other, we are going to have our way, we are going to have our meal. And they had news that their numbers are going to grow, so they went and brought their families with them. <laughs> when you brought your families, they brought theirs. <laughs> yeah, so, and then we used to come down for the arms. <clears throat> if you were there around that time, you'll remember. The Dhamma Hall was only half built. There was half a roof. So, it would be like, we'd come, if we, on a rainy day, we'd walk down with our umbrellas. And then it would be dry under the umbrella. And then you'd fold the umbrella and you walk into the Dhamma Hall and it would be wet again. So, actually, we got used to holding up the umbrella about halfway into the Dhamma Hall. And then there were puddles of water in the Dhamma Hall, which we'd have to walk around. And then we'd go and sit down for the arms and on, the, on dusty concrete benches and muddy floors. Yeah, so that's where we started. But although things have changed from that perspective, some things have remained very much the same. Some things have not changed at all. Our purpose has not changed at all. Why we ordained has not changed at all. The reason we have all come together has not changed at all. And the reason that people keep on coming here, day in, day out, and every week, regularly, that hasn't changed. Those things haven't changed. The people who are always there to back us, to support us, to look after and take care of us, who made it their life's purpose to be of service to the Mahasangha and to protect them. You know, that hasn't changed. Sometimes it's the same people today as there was then. I think the, the villages have changed. They are still the same people, but I think now they know who we are. Back then, we knew who they were, but they didn't know who we were. Now I think they have begun to understand who we are. And now, now I think they, well, very few still come, but now they don't come because they are too shy, too ashamed and for the things that they used to do. They had done and now they're trying to they're trying to overcome that guilt. So if you ever see them on your way here, you know, if you ever have to stop somewhere to whatever, for whatever reason, do try and always be very kind to the villagers because that kindness is not to impress them, but rather, I suppose it is to impress them, it's to impress them enough so that they know that they're always welcome here. Hmm? I've always asked you to be a Dhamma Jeeva, haven't I? Hmm? To be an advocate or rather an ambassador of the Dhamma by demonstrating what we practice and what we preach here through your own lives. So, if ever you are stopped or you stop by the villagers around here. Always be nice to them. Be extra nice to them. Be the nicest you've ever been. 
so that they know that people here are of no threat to them, but rather, you know, we feel that they're all part of our family. Although they may still struggle to make us feel like their family, we do feel that they are our family. Talking about family, Gurutero gave us a sermon recently on Thursday to all our Swami Nuances, and there was one thing that really stood out for me in that talk, and that was, he said, live your lives and develop your character, your attitudes, so that no matter where you go, you feel like you are among family. I, I, those words really resonated with me, and they echoed with me ever since he uttered them, and I, I really, I really felt that there was a lot of depth in those words and really something that we should all aspire to. No matter where you are, if you feel that you are among family, then the whole world is your family. Then you are in your natural habitat. So then you don't feel a stranger then you're friends with everyone. That's when you feel, that's when you can begin to feel an abundance of metta, and compassion, and loving kindness to all. Then you don't feel ostracized. You don't feel that you are separate from everyone. Because when you're in your family, you know, you talk about your family as, we are all one, right? In my family, we are all one. You feel that feeling of connectedness, yeah, when you're in your, in your, with your family. Just take yourself mentally to your, your actual, your, your nuclear family for a second. You know, with your husband, your wife, your mother, father maybe, your siblings, your children. If you take yourself mentally there, now you know what I mean. That, that loving feeling that you get when you're with your family. That compassion that you feel. That trustworthiness that you feel. That connectedness that you feel, that oneness that you feel. And so he asked us to become someone who feels that this entire world is their family. And I thought that was a wonderful thing to strive for and to aspire to, you know, especially in the year to come. I'd like to live by that and, and actually become more of that perhaps something that you might like to <clears throat> aspire to. No matter where you are, see if you feel like you are among family. Not just in your family at home, but at the workplace. Both when you're among friends and when you're among those who you feel won't be friends for long. Or when you're among people who you feel are backstabbers, maybe. Those who you know have done wrong to you, those who you might either suspect or you know that they don't wish for your good, Do you, if you still feel that you're among family, wow, what a liberating feeling that must be. And I think, I think there's a path to get there and I know that there is a path to get there and you know, I'd like to share that path with you. How, how is it that you can be anywhere and everywhere, and you can still feel that you are among family. It's quite possible. Otherwise, he won't ask us to do that. 
Your understanding of the Dhamma is your first step. And as you do that, there's something else that you can practice uh, until you attain your Arahatwood, where you ultimately, I think that is probably where that point is, where, you know, the whole world, Vasudhaiva Kutumbukam, where you feel the whole world is your family. Right? Until you get to that point, your practice of the four Brahmic abodes, so the Satara Brahma Viharana, that will really help you to get a long way there. You start with metta. My explanation of metta will, I am certain, be very limited to my understanding of it because, in fact, I think the only person who can ever explain what metta is is the fount of metta. Huh? You see him? He's over there. I tried asking him. He wouldn't say a word. <laughs> and then silently I heard him say, Keep practicing, you will want to understand. <laughs> he said, you should have been there when I was here. <laughs> so I personally feel that metta is where we can all start. Upeksha is, you know, that's challenging. But you can build yourself up there. So we have this metta contemplation coming up towards the end of this year and as we move into the new year. I want you to make use of that. To, I wouldn't say redefine yourself because I think you have already discovered who you are, what you want to be, where you want to go, right? But you can always fine-tune yourself. Like, like a radio, when you, when you get to those frequencies where you, you know, hear a bit of the music and a bit of that noise and you know, ah, oh, you're close then you don't do the coarse tuning, you do the, the fine-tuning, right? So I think, I think you can all fine-tune yourselves. With metta. Metta is... Metta becomes possible when you become more altruistic more and more altruistic, which is where you put your wants and needs to a side. Now, conventionally, what people will say is, when you stop focusing on yourself and you start focusing on others, I agree with that. But I think if you look at it from the lens of Dhamma and this Jati concept that we are talking about these days, you can actually go a step further. It's not a case of put me aside for them, it, rather it's about finding the common ground. I'll explain. It's about finding what's common and finding the common enemy. It's only in a two-dimensional world that you see you and me. That's a very two-dimensional perspective. You see you and you see me. Bad people, what they do is they hurt, if you are that bad person, you'd hurt me for your gain. No, let me put it on my, on my, from my perspective. I'd hurt you for my gain. That is what I do as a bad person, as an evil person. So I'm prepared to take your life. 
Let's hope someone doesn't just edit that part out and put it online. <laughs> I'm prepared to take what belongs to you without your permission. I'm prepared to cause distrust among yourselves, among your friends and your family by seeking undue sensual or sexual engagements, misconduct. I'm prepared to backstab and break up good, strong, wholesome friendships again for personal gain. I'm prepared to talk to you and deceive you about the world in the hope that I can exploit you for my personal gain. Hmm? Because if I convince you enough I'm sure I can convince you to buy this this leaf. No, all I have to say is, you know, I've been chanting with this leaf in my hand for 300 weeks, right? And it's a blessed leaf. If you want it, you can have it, but it's going to cost you a fair bit. It's a blessed leaf. And if you take it and you just eat a bit of it, you'll become a sotapanna. A little bit more. That will be a sakudagami. Half of it will get you to anagami. And leave the whole of it until I tell you. <laughs> okay? But to get this leaf off me, you're going to have to pay, pay me a bit. See? I can convince you of anything. I don't mean literally, I don't mean about this. I'm just trying to give you a story here. I can convince you of anything for my personal gain. This is exploitation of people's ignorance. That's, you shouldn't do that. You know, like you wouldn't trick a little child. You know, that's just nasty, isn't it? To trick a little child and, 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 and try and cajole them to do what you want. It's nasty. But... And the same concept here, you know, you, you exploit and you make use of people's ignorance and their lack of understanding about worldly matters, about Nibbana, whatever. And you make use of them for your personal gain. That is very wrong. shouldn't do that. So these are, of course, the unmeritorious deeds that you hear me say out loud, at least some of them or most of them. So there are, there are people who do those things for their gain at others' expense. And this is a bad person. Then you have good people. So I'm talking about the two-dimensional perspective. Then you have good people. Good people will not do bad things to others. They won't cause grief or pain and suffering to others. But they're still very much interested in making sure that they are happy. Their happiness is the most important thing to them. So good people aren't bad Just by the fact that they don't intend to hurt others. But it's very easy to make a good person a bad person. In fact, most people turn bad in the association of bad people. Generally speaking, this people in the Sugati worlds, right? there is a reason why they're called Sugati. Sugati or Sugati. Yeah? Because by, by nature, 
you are inclined to do good to others and not be t- bad and terrible to others. That's why this is called the sugati, the blissful pain. So I, you see, blissful is probably not the right word for it. Sugati is something else. Gati is your nature. Sugati, su is yahapa, so good, right? So it's good-natured beings. This is the, this is the, the realm of the good-natured beings. Yeah? The dugati is the realm of the bad-natured beings. So rather than calling it the blissful plane and the woeful plane, that would be a better description of that, I think. So, you and I, we are all beings that belong to the realm of the good-natured beings. So it is in our good nature to not hurt and harm others. But, there are those who dwell among us who have changed from that natural nature to something that is quite unnatural because of their associations. And that association can, is now contagious. That badness, that evilness is contagious just as much as goodness is, is contagious. Badness is it's, it's more contagious because it's easier to do ten bad things than to do one good thing. Isn't it so? Yeah. That's the way it is. So you have to do ten bad things than to do one good thing. So bad people are the people I talked about earlier. Good people are those who will not do bad to others, but they are still interested very much in their own selves. Self-preservation is still key and prime in their pursuits. Then, Good people can also do metta, loving kindness, by contemplating on something like, something along the lines of, I focus on the good of others and less so on mine. So they are good people. That is their practice. It's a very worldly practice. It's mundane. And it will help those beings to reach the more blissful and be, become gods and become brahmas and so on. But the Buddha has a different plan for us. Because in his words, existence no matter anywhere is still suffering after all. So therefore, in the Buddha's teaching, we are not about, it is not about wishing that someone else should be better than I. Although that is the start for a bad person's transformation to a great person. Because you have bad people, you have good people, and then you have great people. Yeah. So, it is the transformation from a bad person to a good person. But from a good person to a great person, you stop seeing and perceiving the them, the, the them and me, and they, and I, and you, and I. And you start seeing the common problem. That common problem is what makes you feel that there's you and they and them and us and we and I. So, you know, it just matters not how much you have understood this concept. See if you can try and just imagine what I'm, what I'm trying to explain to you here. If none of you felt that you are an individual... Okay? If none of you felt that you were an individual, a unique individual, different and separate from everyone else, now you can't talk in the context of may all beings be well, 
or may I and all beings in all worlds. Now you're talking about a separation. You can't talk about may they be better than I. I shall not hurt others for my gain, for my benefit. Because then again you're talking about them and you're talking about I. Again you're talking about a separation. The karmasthana will still be may I and all beings in all worlds be free from suffering, be free from jati, be free from this, that and the other. That won't change. It is how you it's how you perceive, it's how you reflect on that. That, is, that, is, that needs to change and it needs to develop. That is why I'm, I'm sharing this. This is what being mindful is really. Not all in all, but I'm trying to get you to understand and help you understand that. So, let's continue. <clears throat> I'm, trying, I'm trying to help you to prepare yourselves better for the event on the 31st. Now that you have come this far on this journey... I think and I feel that you can do something that maybe a first-timer who comes to the monastery perhaps may not be capable of. A first-timer might come into the monastery or for the program and they will sit down and they will wish well on others or wish well for others. Right? May they be healthy. May they be wealthy. May they be good. May they be, uh, may they be prosperous. They'll be passing on their blessings. And when they do that, they'll feel that they feel lighter, they feel happier. And sometimes you can be fooled to think that this is Nibbana. Been there, done that. <laughs> I bought the t-shirt. You can be fooled to think that that is Nibbana because you feel such a sense of sereneness. You feel that you are God. You feel that you are so good. You feel that this must be what Nibbana is. And I'm getting closer because I'm so good. Who's so good? I'm so good. Yes, I'm so good. Because at the, in those moments you don't feel that, you know, the tiniest bit of anger or resentment about others. Because, you know, that is what you, con- that is what you preach, right? And that's what you chant, right? My friends, my enemies... My this, my that, my, my neighbors, right? those in the north direction, those in the south direction, those in the west direction, those in the east direction, those in the northwest direction, those in the northeast direction. Right? That is, this is what we chant. And as we chant, if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. You feel that you're, you're, you're sort of spreading that, you know, and you feel it coming from here. Hmm? You feel, because you know that's where the heart is. That's why you feel it coming from there. If they told you that the heart was somewhere up here in your shoulder, that's where you'd feel it coming from. <laughs> or or, or you, you, were, you were taught at school that your heart was you know, somewhere at the back. You'd, you'd walk around, you know, turning your back towards others and <laughs> doing your compassion <laughs> towards them. Because that's where you'd feel it's coming from. Those vibes, you know, those radiance, that radiance of compassion. So then, that expression of metta is good. So, we shouldn't discredit that. 
and I wouldn't I wouldn't speak in those these words if I was speaking to you know uh, an audience of newcomers or first timers because they might feel insulted. This is not an insult. I'm talking to you like this because I think you can step up your game. You can go that next step. Hmm? Where so you know on the 31st, if you're going to be here, do try this. What I'm what I'm asking you to do, do try it. But the the the, the the karma sthanam is not going to change. It will be the same, most of it at least, will be the same from last year. Right? You'll still be saying, Mama the Silo Loka Silo Satya. You know, may I and all beings in all worlds. <clears throat> so then you might wonder, well, Swaminasa, why are we talking about I and all beings in all worlds? You said there's no separation. Why are we all talking about separation? Right? Because remember, not everyone there is like you. So we need to cater to the toddler as well as to the connoisseur. They're both there. Someone who's new to this, as well as someone who is acclimatized and someone who is very uh, adept to this, right? we have the whole spectrum. So we need to cater to all of them. Because if we, if we talk to a, a, a gathering of newcomers, the first-timers, and said, now may all, say, chittas, in all worlds. What do you mean chittas? What chittas? Is that chitra you mean? <laughs> Who are you talking about? So, so then we'll have to do separate sessions. Right? These are, this is for beginners, this is for the intermediate, and this is for the advanced. And guess where all of, all of them are going to go and sit? Of course. We'll have to come and get our Swami nonsense to come and sit in the beginner session, whether there'd be no one to do that. <coughs> huh? All the devotees, especially the first timers, they'll go and sit in the advanced class. <clears throat> this is very natural. As someone who's training himself to look at all human beings as children, as someone who's trying to be a, a mother, a father to all human beings, I am able to read this, these sentiments better than I used to. I'm able to observe them and be at peace with them. Those days I used to get annoyed by that. You know, why are people like this? Why can't they just go and sit where they're supposed to sit? Hmm? They know that they're coming here for the first time. So why are they going and sitting in the advanced class? Are they nuts? Huh? Why are they shooting themselves in the foot? Those days, you know, I, I, I used to feel like that, but I don't anymore. Now I know why, why it is the way it is. Now I, know, I, now I remember that when as a young chick, kid, I used to walk in my father's slippers. I used to do that. I used to take his suitcase, his briefcase, and get into his shoes, which were about three or four times the size of my foot. Right? <laughs> and then I used to play hide and seek with my little brother and said, let's play hide and seek, right? When I count to hundred, come and find me. And then he'd go and, oh, I'd, I'll come and find you. And he'd go and hide somewhere and then I'll, I'll walk out. <laughs> And I'll, I'll go somewhere. Sometimes my mother used to get a call from our neighbors. You know, your junior father has come. Please come and collect him. <laughs> it has happened, yes. <clears throat> I have very vague memories, but my mother seems to remember everything. She tells, she relates them to me more fondly than she used to when I was, when I was with her now. This is, you remember this is what you used to do? Now you come to teach us. <laughs> Bless her heart. 
So, so you know, we, we all enjoyed that, didn't we? You know, when you got that little bicycle, you know, the tricycle, right? You didn't enjoy riding that. You wanted to go and sit in the car. And which seat? Which seat? Passengers, right? No, no, driver's seat, yes. <clears throat> no, I've had my own antics. I think my mother was happy to see the back of me <laughs> when I left home. One occasion we were parked on a, on a, on a slope, right? And father got out because he had to run back to the house to fetch something. And I was at the back. Mother was in the passenger seat opposite to the, uh, the driver's seat. And uh, she said, and I'm sure she regretted saying it after she had done, she said, you know, aren't we parked too, uh, too, too, you know, far, much too further from the pavement? And she didn't realize that I felt that it was my duty to then, you know, fix the problem. Hmm? I was only ten. <laughs> Because I'd seen that you can, <laughs> you know, if you're on a slope, <clears throat> I'd seen, and the car was on, so it was, you know, in neutral gear, right? So I'd, I'd, I'd worked out by that point that all you had to do was release the handbrake <laughs> to get this thing to move. So I became the hero. You like to impress your mother, right? Mother, fear not. Right? If ever dad leaves you, I'm here to look after you. See, I can't even drive. <laughs> I think I almost lost my hearing in my left ear that day. You know why? Yes. I haven't heard her scream so much. Perhaps the only day that she screamed so much was on the day that she gave birth to me. <laughs> So it is in our nature, you know, we, we never feel that we are enough. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is also a, a manifestation of this, this is ego again. Right? You feel that you are just not, you are never enough. You want to, become, you want to be more than you are. Hmm? And in an attempt, in an effort to be more than you are, you, you try and do things that adults do. Try and do things that your seniors do. You know, you try, you don't, you forget that the place for a zero, the best place for the zero is right at the end. You forget that. You think that the best place for a zero is, is, at the, is at the front of everyone else. So you try and do that to impress. <clears throat> Fortunately, I live to tell the tale, as you can see. And my mother was taking driving lessons back then. So you can imagine how fearful she was when I, when I did that. And, and I, I wouldn't listen. I'm good now. <laughs> Uh, you should have seen me back then. Oh, I wouldn't listen. When I had my mind at something, I had to do it. Uh, especially when it was something like that. Because you like your toys. Uh, that was a toy for me. <laughs> so then, when father came back, she had almost fainted. She was sweating and the aircon was on. So Apache is like, why are you sweating? The egg is in not, is it not working. <laughs> and she was gasping for a bit. She was catching her breath. She was so scared because we were on a slope, and the the worst thing about it was, you know, right next to that, because that was on a, that was on a, that was a cliff, and just next, you know, we had next door neighbor, right? Because the, the the road was like this, and it was on a hill, and if if we'd steered maybe three feet the wrong direction, we would have gone face down. But I didn't. I wasn't worried about that. I just wanted to make sure that 
I could show her that I could drive the car. But something good came out of it. In the end, I think my mother had explained to my father what had happened. And then I remember a week later, he took me driving. It, I, I love the way that he handled that situation. You know, he didn't shout at me at the top of his voice or, you know, give me a beating. What he did was he said, he took me a week, he, a week later, he took me to this open ground. No, there was no one there. I think in the morning where there was no one there to cause any harm. And then uh, he, he stopped and he said, get out. Are you going to leave me here? <laughs> we were in the middle of nowhere. I said, get out. And so I did. I said, right, go and sit in the driver's seat. So then we swapped places and then he says, right, now I'm going to teach you how to drive. Okay, I'm going to teach you how to drive. I was only 10. I'm going to teach you how to drive. So I, you know, being fairly tall, I could, I could still reach for the pedals and still sit upright. And first thing he said, fasten your seatbelt. And don't, I, don't you ever let me catch you without your seatbelt sat on that seat. Right? This is a lesson I teach you now, one that you'll have to remember for the rest of your life, he said. Okay, okay, so start on my seatbelt. I said, now hold the steering wheel. And then he gave me my first driving lesson. So then he got me to drive a few rounds. There was nothing you could bump into. Right? So even if I decided to try and take off, right, there was ample space you know, between me and any obstacle, right? even the trees were like a million miles away, so it was just a flat land and nothing there. Now, this doesn't, this is not a lesson for any 10-year-olds here to go and ask your father, oh, so Aminahansi got his father to give him driving lessons, how come I can't? <laughs> for that, first you have to release the handbrake <laughs> when you're parked on a slope. That's how you earn it. <laughs> you enter the fear of God into him. <laughs> And then he realizes, before I do something, if I don't do something sooner rather than later, you know, bad things will happen. So he gave me his first lesson and then he said, right, now you know how to drive, right? Now, now that curiosity, because he knew I, he, was, he was dealing with a curious mind. Uh, how does this machine work? Right? How, how, how does those pedals work? Right? You know, which ones do you press? Because I had only seen him do it and I was always, I was always very curious how he used to do it. So, so he, he, he gave me that lesson and he said, right. Now, Buddha, I've taught you how to drive, right? And I want you to drive, but I'll let me tell you when. Okay? One day I'm going to tell you, please can you drive me, please can you drive us this place, that place. Until then, you have to get, take more lessons. One lesson is not enough. You know, one lesson only took you around this place, but how can you drive on Parliament Road? Actually, that ground was quite close to the Parliament, so that's where we used to go for that for a time. And now I think that place is all built up and there's no more place for anyone to go and practice as a 10-year-old. No driving lessons anymore. So, and then he gave me that lesson. And he said, to drive on the streets, on the roads, you need more lessons. And to take more lessons, you have to grow up. Huh? So, you have to be patient for that. So, that's how he managed my my curiosity and my, my, want, to, my want to experience that. Why am I telling you my stories from childhood? Why are we talking about this? Where did we get here? Yes, thank you. Yes, thank you. So, as kids, we always enjoy doing what adults do. Because those are the things we are not permitted to do. There's that, there's, there are two elements to this. One is because you're not allowed to do it. You know, things you're not allowed to do, you feel a thrill, right, when you do it. Hmm? That forbidden 
forbidden love, <laughs> forbidden driving car. <laughs> so these forbidden things always have an have a, have a, have, a, have an appeal to them. You know, there's a thrill to them, right? So that doing doing that thing makes you feel like you achieved something. So there's that. And then on the other hand, you know, you because you know, when you're younger, right, we've all been there. When you're younger, especially the young kids here, you know, hopefully you can relate to what I'm saying. Because you feel that this is you. Hmm? What is this? The body. Right? Because you feel that this is you and you identify with this, you see that this is small. And there are bigger versions of this hmm? around you. Right? So therefore, you identify yourself as a small person. Hmm? And when you identify yourself as a small person, now you feel that you are smaller, you are lesser than others. So therefore, to try and be someone bigger and better than others, you look at what bigger people do, bigger versions of this, people who are stuck in bigger versions of this, what they do, and you try and mimic them. That is why young children like to do things that adults do when they are not even supposed to. So, you see, now the reason I was talking about it is because how I am now training my mind to look at these situations. I want you to look at all people, all human beings through that pair of eyes. Through that lens. Whenever someone's trying to be someone more than they are supposed to be, it is, you know, it is, it is that urge within them to, to try and shine because they feel they don't, they're not valuable. They feel that they are not of great value as they are. So they try to enhance their value by trying, by, by trying to do things that they're not allowed to or supposed to and so on. This is why when if, if we have a meditation program and we say advanced people here, everyone comes and sits there. So really what we do nowadays, if I had to arrange one of those, is I would arrange the three classes and then I just swap the labels. <laughs> so until people came in and sat down, I'd have the advanced class and then once they're all sat down and ready, I remove the sticker and go, right, that's the beginner's class. Because that is what it is. It is the beginner's class. <clears throat> so now you haven't hurt their feelings. Yeah? You haven't made them feel undermined. You haven't made them feel this small. You've given them that respect, that self-respect. Self-respect is a big thing, folks. Self-respect. People go to battle in the name of self-respect. I've heard people, you know, when they're in, when they're in arguments... How dare you say something like that? What about my self-respect, my sense of self-respect? All the while not knowing that they are uttering the most sinful word that you can ever imagine. What is that? Self. Well, that is like washing your dirty linen in public. Hmm? Don't you see I have a self and that self needs respect? Is what they are saying. What do you do then? Respect them? <laughs> It's like you know, it's like going out in public and saying, you know, I have I have this condition, I have I have a big problem with me. Don't you understand that? Uh, and treat me so, treat me, treat me accordingly, and so on. Because self is something to be ashamed of, not something to be proud of. But those with that sense of self and those who have not yet 
embarked on this path, embarked on this journey, will not recognize that. So it is down to those of you who have to be ever so compassionate towards them. Like a mother to a child. <clears throat> Become a king of hearts. That is what I ask all of you to do in this new year. Become a king of hearts. Become someone who, because a king understands his citizens, doesn't he? Hmm? At least he's supposed to. A king is someone who understands his citizens. A king is someone who must have a deep sense of compassion and kindness towards his citizens. And such a king is always loved by his people. I want all of you to be a king of hearts. Strive for that. Do whatever is in your capability, in your power, to become a king of hearts. To do that, you've got to understand that this is only a heart. This is just a heart. By heart, what I mean is, this is just a mind. Remember we talked about this last week. Hurt people? Hurt people. Yeah. Hurt people, hurt people. So when you see that someone is hurt, expect them to hurt. <laughs> Isn't it? If you know that someone's hurt, then expect for them to hurt you. Why do you expect anything else? Because that's what hurt people do. They hurt. They hurt others. See if you can be that, and Guru Thero's words, that shock absorber. They have a huge shock inside them that they want to get out, that they want to relieve, that they want to vent. See if you can be the person that's there to absorb it when it happens. See if you can absorb that shock. Because if you can be that person who absorbs that shock and then still be there standing at the end of it, Remember, you have just become a greater person than you were before you walked into that situation. Because what doesn't break you makes you stronger. And that makes you greater. Good people care about themselves, but they don't exploit or hurt or harm others in the pursuit of, that, of their, their wants and needs. But great people, they are willing to sacrifice whatever they have because they don't see a they and I, a you and I, a we and them. What they see is simply the common problem. Let me put it in an analogy, words that perhaps our younger children might be able to better relate to. Let's say your mother is poorly. Not poor, poorly, meaning ill. Okay. And let's say there are other siblings in the family. Okay. So you say you are one of three. Hmm? your other two siblings are better off than you are and perhaps you are just about able to make ends meet hmm? so you earn just enough to keep the wolf from the door so now when your mother is poorly and she needs treatment but you can't afford it you do whatever you can to get her the best of medicine, best medicines, but now you've run out. There's nothing else you could do, rather, you know, next to starving and giving her whatever food you have. But you know that your brothers, your sisters, you know, your siblings are able to look after her. Question. Let's assume that they are not as keen on looking after her as you are. 
Okay? Okay? They're not as keen on looking after her as you are. Question. At what point would you stop appealing to them? Begging at their feet? Pleading to them? Yielding to their every need and every ask and every demand? If they promise to look after your mother, at what point will you stop? Will you? No. Because now you see a common problem. Because she is your mother just as much as she is their mother. And she is their mother just as much as she is your mother. So now you have a common problem. In fact, you would walk up to them and say, Aya, I'm not asking for myself. I'm asking for our mother. She is your mother just as much as she is mine. We got to look after her. And if I had the means, I would. I wouldn't bother you. I wouldn't trouble you. But I need your help at this point. I need you to do it for me, at least. Do it for her. Look after her because I need you at this time, at this point to step forward and do it. I'm going to try and find the means to do it, but until then I need you to do it. Please, please, please. They say, no, 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 I don't have, I, I've got my family to look after. I've got my, my wife to look after. I've got my children. They go to international schools. We have to pay their tuition fees. Uh, and every other week we go to a restaurant. So we, how can we afford that if we have to spend that money on our mother? Two weeks from now we've got a trip planned to Singapore and it's going to cost us a fair few pennies. How can we go there if we have to spend the money on our mother? <laughs> You'll be like, huh? <laughs> but to them, that'll be, yeah, that'll be normal. Because they're self before others. But you would, sometimes you would even try and reason with them. But, you know, maybe you don't have to go to Singapore. Uh, maybe you can, this year you can stay and do a staycation, maybe. And next year you can go on that trip. Maybe we can, you know, give that money to, for mother's operation. How about that? Please, I beg you. Maybe I'll come and work at your house. Hmm? I'll do some of the, la- I'll, I'll do some of the labor, laborious work. I'll labor around. Can you, don't, you don't have to pay me. Can you, can you get mother's medicines for her? Can you get, uh, get her operation done? You might ask. See, at no point are you going to stop pleading to them because you have a common problem. Because your victory is their victory. And their victory is your victory. Their failure is, is your failure. And your failure is their failure, although at this point they don't realize that. They don't realize that just yet. But you know that one day they'll understand. Perhaps it's when mother's gone. Hmm? Perhaps, perhaps it's then. Sometimes we understand the value of things when they're with us no longer, right? It's just the, the way the world is. But one day they'll understand. And, when, and then perhaps at that point it's too late. Too little too late to save mother. So you keep on pleading to them, you keep on appealing, you keep begging at their feet. Say, I'll do whatever, tell me whatever, I'll, I'll do it. Please, can you attend to mother? Because you have a common problem. Your problem is their problem. In fact, now you don't have a there and your, you just have a problem. Now that is what I mean. 
the only reason that you feel that <clears throat> both I and my friend, I and my enemy, we should all try and attain Nibbana is because Nibbana hasn't happened entirely within you. That is why you still feel that there's them, 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 them and me and we should all try and attain Nibbana and I'm not going to do anything to get in their way. It, mentally imagine yourself as, a, as an Arahant. Now all you see is a common problem. And that common problem is Jati. This is why I asked you the other day, if there were two Arahants, yeah, so this is a hypothetical situation, there were two Arahants, and you went up to them and said, Venerable Sir, unfortunately we have break some, break some bad news to you, one of you will have to give up your Arahanthood hmm, and go back to becoming a, a mundane person or a Prutakjan, or at least an Anagami. And perhaps that Rahatan Mahanse, from the point he was an Anagami person, he strived for 10, 15, 20 years to attain that Arahathood. And in this lifetime, he is not going to be able to become an Arahant again because he just doesn't have the time to practice that. Let's imagine that hypothetical situation. You ask the two Arahatan Mahanses, which one of you, sir, are willing to step forward or is willing to step forward and to give up your Arahanthood? What do you think they'll say? Yeah. Take your pick. <laughs> because at that point they're not going to say, take this one. Please leave me. I strived so hard to attain this Arahatut. <laughs> you can spot the real Arahat that way. <laughs> you know how they spotted who was the real mother of the child? Huh? The old story? When they said, let me split the child up. You take half, you take the other half. The real mother of the child stepped forward and said, what? No, no, it's fine. Hmm? Let this woman keep the child. I've heard that story in lots of different places. The first time I learned it was when I was again 12 years old and someone taught me the story of Akbar and Bilbal. I don't know if any of you <laughs> listen to those stories. Yeah, that's when I first heard it. But then they say it appears in Jataka stories and here, there and everywhere. Anyhow, the story is still valid. So that's how you spot the real mother. So, in much the same way, you spot the real Arahant. You can identify the real Arahant when you ask them, which of you is willing to sacrifice your Arahanthood for someone else? Because it's not someone else anymore. You see, the battle is with ignorance and attachment, not with the other person. It's with ignorance and attachment. As a mother to a child, you know that when a child does not perform well at school, you know when a child does not eat well, when the child does not sleep well, when the child misbehaves. Is it just the child's problem? Do you not have a vested interest in making sure that the child performs well, does well, eats well, sleeps well? Hmm? Because the child's problem is also your problem. When the child is in your womb as a mother, hmm? did you not change your habits, your lifestyle habits, didn't you? The way you ate changed. Huh? The people you associated changed. The places you went to and the places you avoided, they changed. You didn't hang around with the people that you used to because they used to smoke. You didn't hang around with the people that you couldn't refuse a drink if you used to do that. Because you knew if, I was, if I'm going to be there, I'm going to have to take it and it's not good for the child. There were certain foods that you loved to eat but you had to stop. There were certain things that you hated but you had to 
Lots of sacrifices you made because you wanted every goodness to come to the child. That is, that is how, because you know that this child is born within me and I need to give every ounce of love and compassion I have towards this child. A mother is a king of hearts to the child. That is the motherly instinct, the motherly compassion. Now imagine, if you could extend that out to all sentient beings. To do that, you need to recognize that the problem here is simply the common problem, which is just jati, which is this ignorance and attachment. Because once you spot that, folks, once you spot the mosquito in the room, once you spot that, you immediately stop seeing me and they and you and them and us and all that. First person, third person, what's the other one? Middle person. <laughs> huh? Second person, yes, thank you. First person, second person, third person, they all go out. And that's why they have these pronouns, right? Because when there's separation in this world, you need somehow to express that separation. The world is, has been constructed for people who experience separation to, to live comfortably. Huh? But in the truth is, there is, no, there is no such thing. There is no first person, second person, or third person. There are only bodies and minds. What minds do is they mind. Hmm? They mind sights, sounds, smells, taste, touch, and thoughts of Dhamma. That's what they mind. And simply the, the, the job of a news reporter. Hmm? This has happened, that has happened, the other has happened. This is, what, this is all that thoughts do. This is what the mind does. But in addition to that, there is this rogue process that is unwelcome. This rogue process which hijacks this mind and in that mind where everything is just calm and serene and cool and peaceful, something happens. And now you immediately begin to feel that there is an I and there is a them and there is my children and there is my family. Right? So, you know, something else Guru Hanru, or as he was explaining this concept, he said, People with a small heart, I don't mean physically now, of course, right? People with a small heart, the extent to which they can ex extend love, so understand love in the right words, okay? The extent to which they can extend this love, loving kindness, because they only have a small heart, that, that, that radius, if you call it the blast radius, huh, is very small. It only extends as far as this. This is the, this is the extent that, that will reach. I. The very small heart. There's no room for others in that heart. It's a very small heart. There's only room for me. As I say, you know, this room ain't big enough for the two of us. Yes. So true if you have a very small heart. This, there's not enough room for the two of us. There's only enough room for one of us. And that one person is going to be there. And he's going to reign there. He's going to be king. <clears throat> so they'll only look after themselves. Look after their needs and their wants. Their satisfaction, their fulfillment, their joys. And will do anything and everything to keep themselves happy. He said, don't be that kind of person. He said, it's far better to be someone who has a bigger heart into which you can fit 
a few more people at the very least. You know, someone who is so self-obsessed will not even have a family. Some people who are so self-obsessed, they won't have a family. Because they don't even have enough room in their hearts to look after another person, make a sacrifice for another person. Now, that's not to say that anyone who lives by themselves is a very selfish person. There are hermits who live in the Himalayas. They are oozing with compassion and loving kindness and abundance. They feel that their entire world is their family, so they don't need to make family with just one or two people. That's a different story. But what I'm saying is there are people out there, they are so self-obsessed, they are the center of the universe, that they are not willing to make even the smallest sacrifice for another person. So therefore, they are fearful of sharing their life, their homes, their bedrooms, their bed with another person. Because they feel that is a threat. They're so scared, they're so worried, very nervous, anxious, paranoid. Now you see, now you can begin to understand where all these mental conditions come from. This is lovely territory to be walking down. As we, you know, we do every talk, we discover something new. It's very enlightening. Hmm? Why, why are people so paranoid? Because they fear, then they, they fear threats to their very being. When their very being is threatened, or they at least feel, because threaten, threatening is something that someone feels. It's a perception. Fear is a perception. Fear is not a real thing. That's why they, that's why they say, fear and do it anyway. You heard that? You know, that's what we teach. Anagarika putas and Anagarika Logaputas and Swami Nuhansas and whoever. If they fear something, the other day, right? 13 year old, young Anagarika Puta came and said, Swami I'm really scared. Of what? Of the dark. I said, why? What's wrong? No, the dark. Yeah. What about the dark? I'm scared. Why? I don't know, I'm scared. I don't want to go in the dark. <laughs> the funny thing is, you know, this is a 13-year-old, right? Can you believe me? Two weeks later, a 33-year-old came and said that. <laughs> this is this Anagarikaputta, and you have this Anagarikaputta. And they're both scared of the dark. So now you see, you've got to be able to look at that mind as a mother would a child. So it's not right to say, how dare you know, look at yourself in the mirror. You're old enough to be the father to three children. You're scared of the dark. How ridiculous. That's not going to help him, is it? Because fear is a perception. What can you do if the perception occurs? It occurs. It's like an itch. It's like when you want to sneeze. Huh? Imagine someone said, don't you sneeze. <laughs> Ah, you're going, ah, when it's building up and someone comes and puts a, head, puts a gun to your head, sneeze and that will be the last time you do. Is that reasonable? Is that fair? No, because it's not something you can help. Hmm? You've got you to understand, you know, these are just, they're just minds. You've got to be gentle with them. You know, this is also good advice for, for parents, you know, bringing up their children. Right? Sometimes a child won't behave the way you want them. 
always try and spot that this is simply ignorance and attachment having hijacked my child. It's not them. It's someone doing it to them. And that someone is that ignorance. That someone is that attachment. It's some, that someone is that jati. So your, your fight is not with the child. Your fight is not with your husband. Your fight is not with your wife. Or with your mother. Or with your siblings. Because hurt people hurt people, remember? No one goes around hurting themselves. <clears throat> you know, if you... I remember when I wanted to apply to those uh, medical college. Once I went to this seminar and uh, for an open day. And then there was a, there was a chap who, he, he looked self-important, i put it that way. And uh, so he was like, you know, I don't like the way the world is. I said, what's wrong with you, dude? So he's, he, and he was saying, you know, there's all these people in this world, I don't know why they cause themselves all this pain. He wasn't talking like about the Dhamma. He's like, you know, why do people smoke? You know, they shouldn't be smoking. You know, now look at all these smokers. Because of them, we have all this trouble at the NHS, and you know, there's not enough hospitals. And they should, if, you just, if they just stopped smoking, how easy would it be? So there was a Q and A session at the end of this talk, and he thought he was very smart. So he wrote down a question. <laughs> I saw him writing it. Like, you know, why are people so selfish, and why do they smoke? Why are people so selfish, and why do they eat so much? To obesity. Huh? Then, if 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 not for people like them. We wouldn't have to work so hard. We wouldn't have to uh, struggle so hard. We wouldn't have to have this, this, these hospitals and we wouldn't have to be, we wouldn't have to be so understaffed. Huh? Why can't they just look after themselves and, you know, be, be, be mindful and respectful towards others and just, you know, just, just off with themselves? So he wrote this sheet of paper and he passed it down, thinking that he was asking a very intelligent question. So when the question reached the uh, podium, this person picked it up and he said, Hmm. So she read out the question and she said, uh, that's a really interesting question. Huh? I, <laughs> she said, that's a really interesting question. Please, for the gentleman who asked this question or the lady who asked this question, please make themselves known. <laughs> so you can imagine how, how eager this person was, right? So this is, remember, this is ap- applying for medical college, right? And they look for how willing you are and how compassionate you are to others and how you, you are, you can, you, your heart melts, right, in, in, the, in, in the face of other people's pain and suffering, right? So a question like this, you can imagine the uproar it must have caused, right? So, but, you know, calm and cool as a cucumber, she says, can the person who, who, who sent this question please make themselves known? Like, can the real Slim Shady please stand up? So, so this person stood up. Like, uh, sir, could you just come and uh, speak with this gentleman? And he, she ushered, her, he ushered him out of the room with another person. And that was the end of it. We never saw him again. He never returned. I think he got told where he had to go. They decided he wasn't doctor material. There was no way they could mold him into becoming a doctor because he just didn't have the attitudes. He just didn't have that compassion to be a doctor. Now, imagine an arahant, someone who wishes to be an arahant. You can't be angsty with people. You can't be faced by people who suffer. You, just because someone 
is annoyed, because someone has defilements, because someone is angry or irritated or agitated, or because they, they conduct themselves in, in ways that would be scorned in society. It is not an arahant's place or an arahant aspirant's place to criticize them, to mock them, to ridicule them, to punish them. Because if they do so, then they have missed the common enemy. Now you are attacking that person. What you should really be doing is identifying this is not them. This is simply ignorance and attachment or jati doing, this, doing its dirty tricks on this mind. That is being mindful. So you see, to be mindful, you don't need a program. Life is your program. That is the mindfulness program. You are living it 24-7. Whenever, remember last week we talked about this, never run away in the face of adversity. We talked about this last week. Be mindful in the face of adversity. Mindful about what? Hurt people hurt people. So if you are being hurt, then it's because they are hurt. Your compassion should extend beyond this six feet, one feet wide, one foot wide, six feet tall, right? Your compassion should extend beyond that and reach farther out to encompass more ailing hearts. And then get it to stretch even further, extend even further. Reach out to your neighbors, reach out to your Workplace, reach out to your friends, reach out to the rest of the country, reach out to the rest of the world. Because wherever you look, wherever you see, there will always be bodies and minds stuck in those bodies, ailing. Ailing because of one common problem, and that is jati. When you start to see the world in that way, folks, you, won't, you, will, you will recognize that your, your forehead will, will stop wrinkling in the face of problems. You will experience that. Things that used to make you go will make you go. It's okay, Buddha. It's okay. I understand. I understand. It's all right. I understand why you feel that way. I understand where you're coming from. I understand why it's difficult for you. I want you to be able to say it and actually mean it. Because it's supposed, supposedly the, the, the good thing, the nice thing to say, right? When you're in a conflict, you're supposed to acknowledge the other person's uh, dissatisfaction, their problem, their discontentment. And, and apparently that is the first step to problem resolution. What I'm trying to get you and to help you do, folks, is to really identify with that and say it because you mean it, not like you mean it. You got to say it like you mean it? No. Say it. Because you mean it. Say it because you mean it. When you say, I understand. Someone comes and complains. This is what they should teach in complaint handling courses. All businesses island-wide should be taught these lessons. Businesses can become successful if only they learned how to become a king of hearts. But this is all anchored and centered in the Dhamma. Without the Dhamma, without a lesson on Jati... Without this discourse on jati, you can only try and train yourself to do this forcefully. Yeah, that's what they do in these 
good training programs and courses. You know, they say, right, if you get angry, don't respond to your customer at that point. Walk away. Get someone else to come and step in and let them deal with the situation. Or go for a walk. Count to ten. Do all these things. But that's never the answer to the problem. In fact, it's never the solution to the problem. It might be an answer to that question, but it's not the answer, it's not the solution to the problem. The problem always remains. You've answered the question. The problem remains because the problem does not require an answer, it requires a solution. But once you start to spot jati, now it's not a case of me against you. It's a case of the both of us against the common enemy. So, let's both fight this battle now. Now you want to help them. You want to save them. Now you, you become a savior. <laughs> you become like God. You become a savior. This is what being a king of hearts is about. Put yourself in those situations and when you are, you know, today if anyone would come and say, Saminas, I was in this situation, I got really angry, right? And at that point I, you know, gave a real verbal abuse to the other person. Right? I, I, I taught them a good lesson. I would always hope that, you know, I, I'd say, in, you know, next time you feel that way, how about you come and do it in front of me? Because you did it in the presence of someone who was not able to give you a bit of TLC. What's TLC? Tender loving care. You did it in the presence of someone who wasn't able to give you a bit of TLC. But if you only came and did it in front of me, then I wouldn't shout back. I wouldn't retaliate. All I'd say is, I see, I understand. What do I understand? <laughs> yeah. Perhaps I don't understand a word they're saying. But that's not what I say I understand. Maybe they're shouting at me in Chinese. Huh? Maybe they're yelling at me at the top of their voice in a language that I don't even know a single word of. But I'll still say, I understand. I understand you. Because I actually understand you. <laughs> I understand you. It's okay. It's okay, I understand you. And I am sorry. Now, you see, I am sorry simply rolls off the tongue. There's no problem saying I am sorry anymore. Because you're not sorry about what you've done or what they've done. It's not like that. You're sorry about the common problem. You're sorry about something they should also be. But they just don't know it yet. That is what you're sorry about. I'm sorry. You don't have to say, I'm sorry about Jati. You don't need to say that. You say, I'm sorry. I really am sorry. But what you mean is, I'm sorry that this has happened. Let me help you. In fact, your sorry might be enough to get them on the track to recovery. That's all they need. You know, most people, when they're angry, what, what's, the, what's the best medicine there is for a, for a person who's angry? Huh? An apology, right? That's all they're looking for. See, see how, how much ignorance belittles someone and demeans someone. Huh? A man who is having a hissy fit of rage, and they're they're, they're threatening to burn the whole world down, right? And and completely devastate everything around them 
the moment you say, I'm really sorry. And I, I'm honestly, I'm so sorry that happened. Fine, then it's okay. <laughs> huh? Then it's okay. Where's all that anger gone? <laughs> and you thought you'd have to say sorry at least a million times. Huh? And then beg at their feet and pray to them and worship and then do an incense stick and make an offering or whatever. And do a puja in front of them. No, all you said was, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really sorry. Anger gone. Because anger is a manifestation. Anger is a perception. Anger is something the mind cooks up by itself because he's a hurt person. Therefore he's hurting you. You've got to be a king of hearts. Learn to be a king of hearts. Study that situation. Immediately, immediately you know, st- stop seeing the person. That's what I'm asking you to do. In practical words, what I'm asking you to do is stop seeing the person and see the heart. What do I mean by heart here? The mind. Hmm? See the heart. Look at the heart. And tell yourself, it's simply a heart. It's just a heart. It's just a heart. And heart, a heart that is hurt. A hurt heart. Because a hurt heart can be very hard. So, when you come across a hurt heart, you've got to spot that. All you've got to do is work your magic. And that working magic starts with your understanding and realization of the Dhamma. Starts with that. While you're trying to realize the Dhamma and understand and comprehend the Dhamma, hmm? while you're in this process of listening to the sermons and contemplating and working through towards that enlightenment, practice as much you can this metta. Practice metta as much as you can. Mindfully, try and be aware that, because actually, you know, your understanding of the Dhamma and your application of the Dhamma is metta. You put it that way. Understanding of Dhamma is one. Application of Dhamma towards sentient beings comes fourfold. Metta, Karuna, Mudita and Upeksha. That is your application of it. So your understanding of Dhamma can be perceived from the outside when you expound, when you express, when you share Metta. Because if you are to share the opposite of those things, now it's easy to tell. You've not understood just the tiniest bit of Dhamma. You haven't understood, you haven't realized the Dhamma. You are not a Buddha Putra. Why do, what does it matter that I'm in a robe if I can't if I can't give people metta, if I can't give people karuna and mudita and upeksha? What's what's the, what's the purpose of this? What's the meaning of this? I don't I don't own this thing. I'm not a rightful owner to this. When you see a Swami Nuhanse, don't you feel a sense of deep respect? Hmm? Simply when you see a robe. No, that, that sight itself. Because, you know, this image has something about it. It is an emblem. So, once we don this, 
Now it becomes our life's purpose and our life's duty to fulfill the role that is expected of you when you wear this uniform. This is a uniform. Much the same as what you are wearing right now. That is also a uniform. You are clad in white. White is a symbol of purity. Pureness of heart. So if this is the king of hearts, these are the bishops. Or these are the knights. One day hopefully to become kings. You have all been knighted. As I say, you know, united. <laughs> you stand, right? So now you are knighted. So, united. So, you know, I, I want you all to be like an army. Hmm? We are all an army. Our battle is with a common enemy. But the enemy doesn't know that. So, the, the, in the conventional sense, the enemy, the person who has a go at you, the person who tries to attack you, they don't know that. They think you are the enemy. That's like a child. When you ask the child, Buddha, go and do your homework, please. Say, no, not doing homework. Please go and do your homework. They think they're doing it for you. <laughs> That's why they're not willing to do it. Yes or no, mothers or fathers? That's why they don't want to do it, because they think they're doing it for you. One day they're going to realize they're doing it for whom? For themselves. When that day dawns, now you don't need to be on their case. They're going to do it. But you as a mother, you as a father, know that for this child, this child does not understand the problem today. But one day, despite them not understanding the problem today, they will suffer the consequences one day. And when that day comes, perhaps I won't be here to look after them. So therefore, I must encourage them, inspire them, ignite that desire within them to try and solve their problem and get them to do what they need to do now so that they can reap the rewards later. See, that you do with compassion. Sometimes you might not do it for the child next door, but you'll do it for your own child. If you've ever been in a position where you've had to hit your child. Okay? You know, there is a way you can hit your child with compassion. I'm not condoning corporal punishment. So at our monastery, we don't do that. But, you know, only yesterday, we had some new young children that we took on. The youngest one is six. I know. We are crazy. <laughs> they are special cases because they, for them, both mother and father have come into the sasana. The mother is an anagarika and the father is a monk or become an anagarika, going on to become a monk. And if we didn't take the child on now, then the mother has to wait until the child is 14 to enter the anagarika program. By that time, sometimes her youth has passed her by. So you want to give her the opportunity to come and join the army, the noble clan, and start working on her deliverance, on her liberation. So therefore, we've gone the extra mile and said, okay, we'll take him on as well. 
Yesterday I was here in you know Hindi class, <laughs> and someone, young one young child was screaming at the top of his voice. So we had to stop the class for a few moments because he was she was he was so loud, screaming. Because the mother had to go to the anagarikara. But the father is here. The father is a monk. But the child, you know, he he's, he's still just getting used to it. You know, it's like your first day at Montessori, right? The first day you cry because you don't want your mother to leave. The second day you cry because you don't want your mother to come and <laughs> take you back. Young children, right? Because they have small hearts. We need to teach them how to grow that heart. Because right now they are concerned about themselves. That's what being a kid is all about. See if you are still a kid. A kid is someone who can only care about themselves. Who only knows to care about themselves. My happiness, my safety. They are very very careful about who they associate because stretching outside of that is going to you know what do you call it uh, encroach you know and, and they're going to have to sacrifice their comfort they're stepping outside their comfort zones they're innocent yes they, of course they are but you know this is the mind we're talking about really what the, a kid is innocent simply because a kid does not have a lot of knowledge that's why but a kid is no saint. <laughs> you can understand that. Remember, this is a kid who, who, who died as an adult. Hmm? Or maybe, you know, maybe it was a, a dangerous person back then. So this is the same mind. Just you've taken out the memory card, right? And you've taken out knowledge and now they're just left with their basic instincts. That's what this is. That is why a kid is apparently harmless. But, but when a kid is angry, when a kid is upset, it expresses that dissatisfaction, that anger, that frustration by crying. Because that's all it knows how to do. If it, if it knew how to shoot, <laughs> the gun, it would do that. Otherwise, you know, otherwise, you know, the, the best way to get someone into the heavens is what? As soon as the child is born. Huh? <laughs> I'm not going to say the rest, the rest of it. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. They're no saint. A saint is made. Saints aren't born. They're made. Only the Dhamma can do that. So that is what we are going to do with these young children. And uh, the best part about that is, you know, they are starting out at such a young age, they will not have the misfortune of the evil and bad associations that you and I might sometimes have had to go through in our lives. So they are going to grow up in and amongst noble ones. In and amongst kings and knights of hearts. You will be their parents. Perhaps on some occasions we might have to ask you to come and spend some time with them. Can you look after them while we have the sermon? You might have to do that. The Anagarika Mahatmyas have volunteered. Quite a few of them have a lot of experience working with young children. So they have volunteered to give up a part of their time in, in the time that they have set aside for serving the sasana. Because that is serving the sasana, isn't it? You know, if I started out at 
at this at this age, right? And in the last five years, I can see how much change has happened within me. Imagine this, but starting at six, and then at eleven, <laughs> without all the rubbish, hmm? like double filtered water. <laughs> It'll be like feeding them, feeding them distilled water. <laughs> That's what's going to happen with them. So I think you know, good things will happen, and they will go on to, you know, practice the path. They will go on to become anagarika mahatyas, the eighteen minus, and then they go on to become senior anagarika mahatyas, and then one day they will enter robes, and I don't know. Perhaps they'll enter robes as Radhanvanses. It's quite possible. It's quite possible. You are doused in Dhamma and doused in compassion and kindness, mercy. These, these wonderful things. They don't know what evilness is about. Because it may linger in their hearts, but they are not given the opportunity for that, for that, for that burning embers to, to start a fire again. So therefore, while it remains in embers, you know, we put it out. Because the thing is, once, it, once the fire lights, now it causes harm and, and damage to everyone around them, and then all of those things are demeritorious. And then every demeritorious deed you do steps you away from attaining liberation, attaining happiness. So that is the, the real benefit that they are going to gain. Now I know what these doers are thinking. What about us? What about us? Hmm? Yes, yes, soon. Soon. Keep on, keep on healing hearts. That is what you need to do. Keep on healing hearts. You are all knights and dames. Hmm? So keep on healing hearts. In the presence of adversity, when you know that someone's trying to hurt you, recognize that that's a hurt person. That's why they're hurting you. So it's no good for you to be, you also to become a hurt person. Because now when you become a hurt person, what are you going to do? You're also going to hurt. And then an eye for an eye, and the whole world goes blind. Isn't it? A knife and an eye makes the whole world blind. So don't be someone like that. <clears throat> be a king of hearts. Be a knight of hearts. So this is the mindfulness that you need to always have about you. Always try and get yourself onto that track. You, there will be times where you will steer off track. No? That will happen. Because it is through practice that you need to keep yourself on that lane. right? So this is lane guidance. Being here gives you ample lane guidance. Your Piritnola gives you lane guidance. You know, these modern motor cars, they have lane guidance, right? Don't they? Yeah. So, you know, you also can have lane guidance. So when you start steering off the path, there will be a little alarm bell that rings. When you are in and amongst noble friends, 
they will be the best alarms. Hey, you, get back. <laughs> that, is why, that is why it is so wise of you to, to, to you know, consciously choose the, the, the five people that you want to spend your time with. Every six or six of you know every every six to seven months, it's it's a very good thing to do. Remind yourself who are the who are the five people I spend most of my time with. You know, ask yourself why have most people come and try to settle down or in and around the monastery, in the Sudha Minister village, because it's that association that they're looking for. Because they know if ever we try to steer off path, right, the Swaminathans will put us back on track. Because we will not allow you to retaliate. It is forbidden. Retaliation is forbidden. You can only retaliate in kindness. You can only retaliate with compassion. So if ever someone comes to take an eye, you give an eye and a heart. There's the eye, here's the heart. It's happened, you know, in the past. Utpalavanna, Maharaj One day she was having rest in her kuti and someone who had been mesmerized by her beauty he'd always kept an eye on her and always wanted to you know be with her and so he was mesmerized by her eyes apparently it was the eyes that was you know for him the the great appeal so one day he'd hit himself hid himself under her bed and then when she'd gone round on arms and come returned to her kuti this person comes out from under the bed and then says, right, now you're going to be with me. <laughs> now, remember, she's a queen of hearts. She's a queen of hearts. So this man's asking for an eye. Because actually she asks her. She asks this man, Sir, what are you so mesmerized about? What is it about me that you want? You know, because in the, in the back of her mind she's thinking, if this man puts not his hand but a finger on me, the amount of demerit that he's going to cause himself is going to destroy him and, and completely going to ruin his entire sansara. For a very long time to come. Because in the process of him doing whatever he wants to me, I'll probably die. So then he's going to commit a heinous sin as well, on top of all that. I don't want that to happen to him. She spots the common enemy. At which point she had already defeated the enemy. But she knows who the enemy is. See, she's trying to save him from the enemy. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? She is trying to save him from the enemy. She is not trying to save herself from him. That is what regular people do. Regular people. Average people. That's what they do. They try to save themselves from others. Great people try to save others from the real enemy. They don't see this man as a threat. How about that precise? Huh? She doesn't see that he is a threat. She doesn't perceive him as a threat. And even he must think, oh, I'm going to get what I want today. 
not going to let you go. You might be scared right now. Right? You might despise me right now, but I don't care because I'm here to get what I want and I'm not going to leave until I get what I want. And he's probably thinking, by hook or by crook, I'm going to get what I want. So you better not fight. You better comply. Right? If you're not going to give me what I want, I'll do anything and whatever it takes to get what I want. So in fact, he feels that she's a threat. A threat to achieving what he wants. This man thinks that Rahatan Mahansa is a threat to him. <laughs> oh, how blind can one be? He doesn't spot the enemy. Because the enemy is king right now in his, in his kingdom. The enemy is king. Jati is king in his kingdom. But that Rahatan Mahansa spots this. Now, She's always a mother. And in front of her is standing what? Who? A child. A baby. An infant. If you remember as a mother, you know, when your two-year-old came and kicked you, I said, give me what I want, give me what I want, give me what I want, I'm going to kick you and hit you and... Especially if they've, you know, learned these things at school or, you know, Montessori or maybe on TV. I'm going to hit you and I'm going to kick you and I'm going to kill you. I've heard some young children threaten their mothers like that. Only this big. As I say, not the size of two lemons. But threatening. I hit you and I kick you and I kill you. So this is how this Rahat Terunimansa feels about this, this man. He's here to rape her. And so she asks, Sir, what is it you want? What have you come for? Oh, your eyes. And I see those eyes. I can't look away. I just want them. I need to be with you. No, I need to be with you today. I'm not going to leave until you give me you. Give me yourself. Surrender yourself to me. I'm here to devour you. So she says, this? This is the appeal? This I? Is that what you want? See, now you are waiting in the story for her to give her eye to him, right? Did you miss that she would already given something? What had she already given? Her heart. She would already given her heart. She would given that away the moment he set eyes on her. The moment she spotted her, she had already given her heart away. He doesn't know that. He's already got her heart. It's too big for him to even carry it. Huh? Him and his entire clan can fit into it and then there will still be space because there's enough room for the whole world in there. She had already given him her heart and he's still asking for her eye. Something so small. When she had already given him something so something so huge, something so big, something magnanimous. So she says, okay, why don't you, you know, why do you go through all this trouble? You don't have to go through all this trouble. Let me do you a favor. 
So she digs her fingers into her eye socket and plucks her eye out and says, this is what you want, sir? There you go. You may have it. She did it so that he didn't have to. Look about Think about that. She did it so he didn't have to. Because she knows that if he did it, then there's never going to be a day when he's going to become a king of hearts. Certainly not for a very long time to come. Because as she is king, as she is queen of that kingdom, she wants more citizens. She wants more peasants, more, more citizens. Hmm? As any king would like. More, more, more people in the kingdom. That's what the Buddha did from the moment he ordained, right? He went looking for the first five citizens of his kingdom. And then he went on giving on this gift. He went on knighting people. And every time he knighted someone, he said, Right, now it's your duty to go and knight someone else. Go on. Train yourself for about five years under your teacher. And then once you have trained yourself, now you can go and knight someone else. And may the kingdom grow. A kingdom where everyone is a king of hearts. That is, that is what we belong to. So that is what she did. She did something so that he didn't have to. And at that point he was shocked. He couldn't believe his eyes. He couldn't believe what just happened. He never thought for a moment that she would make such a sacrifice. See, only then he thinks that she's made a sacrifice. He doesn't know that she'd already given him a huge gift the moment he walked into that room and said, I'm going to have you today. The thing is, he didn't know that she had already had him. <laughs> he was the prey and she was the predator. <laughs> He thought he was the predator and that she was the prey because she is queen of hearts. She had already given her compassion and kindness. This is the kind of person you need to be. This is the stuff that Arahants are made of. Hmm? Becoming an Arahant is a, is a series of cause and effect. An Arahantur is an effect. It needs to manifest as all things. It doesn't fall out of the sky, it doesn't grow on trees, it doesn't blow in the wind, it's not something you step on by mistake. Arahants aren't born, they're made. Your task is to make an Arahant. Making an Arahant is about making yourself a king or a queen of hearts. You have all embarked on that journey as knights. You know, even from the little ones. See, Saturday afternoon, Saturday morning, they come here and they sit down in this sermon. And you know, this is not what normal children do. Are you, is something wrong with you children? This is not what normal children do. What's wrong with them? Look at this child. It's not what normal children do. Come here, sit down at Swami. <laughs> just stare at him. Not a sound from them. No trouble, no bother, nothing at all. Half of these things they might not even understand. 
But for the half that they do, they're still here. You can't tell me they come here for the roti. (laughs) (laughs) When at home, pizza is the alternative. (laughs) Why come here for a roti? (laughs) These are very abnormal children. They don't belong to this world. They have become aliens in this world. That is why their citizenship in this world will not be for for long. Their days are numbered. They won't be here for long. They will be expelled. You shall be expelled for your sins. Your membership will be terminated. You'll be kicked out. Never to come back. They are also knights of hearts. So this is your mindfulness, folks. Be always mindful about this. So, you know, for this, you don't need a karmastan. You, just, you don't need to be chanting something all the while, all the time. Right? <clears throat> adversity is a real builder of character. You know, it is adversity that made a Buddha. Don't forget that. If you think Bodhisattva, if you think, uh, what's his name? No. Devadatta. If you think that Devadatta was an evil person, a very bad person, terrible person, you know, why didn't he just leave the Bodhisattva on his own? Right? Why couldn't he just mind his own business and let the Bodhisattva do his job and become a Buddha sooner? It would not have happened. <laughs> would have happened. We'd still be, Siddhartha Gautam would still be a Bodhisattva if it wasn't for Devadatta. He helped the Buddha aspirant. Because in every encounter that they had throughout samsara, throughout their time together, the Buddha or the Bodhisattva practiced the virtue of becoming a king of hearts. Because he was a knight right from the start. Right from the Mataposaka Jataka. Where he determined, I will only look back one day after having saved, as I have saved my mother today from this vast ocean, I have saved her from drowning in this sea, so I shall save every sentient being from this vast ocean of suffering. That day he resolved that. From that day he was a bodhisattva. That's the stuff that bodhisattvas are made of. In Guru Hamra's own words, he said, you know, you are, none of you, he was looking at us, he said, none of you are still Buddhas. You are all Bodhisattvas. He said, you are all Bodhisattvas. So do what Bodhisattvas do, is what he said. If you are a Bodhisattva, do what Bodhisattvas do. Because it is a Bodhisattva that becomes a Buddha. It is not the Buddha that becomes a Buddha, is it? So you can't do what Buddhas do and become a Buddha. You've got to do what Bodhisattvas do to become a Buddha. Once you are a Buddha, now you can do what Buddhas do. So what do Bodhisattvas do? Bodhisattvas shock absorb. They expound compassion. 
They make their presence a blessing to others. They, in fact, they make this world livable. You know? It's because of the bodhisattvas that you and I still have, that we can really live in this world as we do. Amidst all this chaos, amidst all the rife and You know, it's, it's because of the bodhisattvas. Sometimes, you know, they, they, I'm not saying they're all Buddhists. They can be Hindus. They can be uh, Christians, and Catholics and Muslims. They can be Jews. They can be atheists. They don't have to be of any particular religion. Because a bodhisattva is not someone who necessarily subscribes to a particular faith. They believe in one faith, though. I live for others. That is what they subscribe to. That is their motto. As a king of hearts, or as a knight of hearts, what I want you all to do is make that your motto in life. I live for others. One day you will come to a point where you breathe for others. You eat for others. You go on arms round for others. Remember Kashyap Maharaj and <laughs> he went on an arms round for others. When there were kings and emperors who invited him, along with the Buddha and the other Arahatun Mahansis, please, sir, come and take your arms with us. He sought a special permission from the Buddha. He said, Venerable Sir, please would you permit me to carry on with my routine practice of going round on arms so that I can be of service to others. So then he went to the leper. He went looking for poor people. Those who were disadvantaged. Those who had next to nothing. And he would go and stand in front of someone's house and they had nothing to eat. But, you know, people saw this and then immediately, you know, they went into some kind of panic mode. Uh, We've we got to do something. It's a Swami Nuhansi. We have to do something. We have to do something. What do we have? What do we have? What do we have? We've got nothing. Oh God, we've got nothing. What can we do? Don't we even have a grain of rice? Maybe the water that we use to wash the rice, at least, if nothing else, from yesterday? Because they used to save it. In those days, when there were famines and, and droughts, you know, people used to save that. The water that you used to wash the rice grains, they used to save it and have it as a meal. Today you open the fridge and you have everything. But there were times when you don't remember that's what it is. <laughs> you and I were there. You just don't remember. Today you look shocked. Huh? What? <laughs> you just don't remember. So they used to save that. And they said, at least let's, you know, let maybe boil this and offer this. That's all we have. That is what we were going to survive on. My wife and I, we were, this is all we have to live on for the rest of the day. But, you know, it's always the Swami Nuhansay comes first. Such virtue... Such, such morality, such wisdom, you know, that is always to be venerated. Venerable sir, please do come in. Please don't walk away. You have done us so much good by choosing to stand out here today. Please, please do come in. And they would offer him whatever they could, you know, couple up for him to sit down, wash his feet with whatever they had as water. You know, these are drought times. Maybe all he could had was his handkerchief to wipe his feet. And the sweat that was in there to wash it and he would sit down, and then he would run into the house, his wife and him would boil the, the, the soup, they would call it, 
and they bring in and say, well, most venerable sir, this is all we have. Please do forgive us for not being able to offer you any more than this. This is all we have. Please be so kind to accept this offering. You know, it's, if it was just one day, you could have said, Kajamaratan once he made the wrong decision, don't go in on arms. Uh, it was just a poor choice that he made. And next day he would have decided, good Lord, if I go down this path, there's nothing to eat. So I better go and, you know, have my dinner with the kings. There, you're always going to be well fed. But no, that was his lifestyle. Because he was a king of hearts. He went around looking for hearts to heal. He didn't go around looking for arms. That's the thing. You see a man with an arms ball and you think, here's a beggar coming to get what we have. <laughs> coming to take what we have. No. Here's a man with a size, with a heart the size of a mountain. He's come to show you his arms ball and open his heart and ask you to step in. Into that arms ball you'll put a grain of rice He'll open his heart and say, come on in. There's plenty of room for all of us. That's the king of hearts. You've got to be like that, folks. That's the stuff that Rahatanvansis are made of. That's the kind of stuff that we all need to be. That's what Guru Hanra expects of us. He tells me, personally and as well as when he gives instructions to all of our monks, don't you worry about whether you understood the Dhamma or not. He tells us that. If you don't understand some of the things that I preached to you, it's alright, don't worry about it. If you don't understand how Bhavapachya becomes Jati, don't worry about it. Let it be. Because that will happen when it happens. Because that is a result. It's like your exam results. If you sit at, sat at home, you know, in your, at your study, uh, wishing, I, I want to get A grades, A grades, A grades, A grades, A grades. And they give you time for to do your studies for your exams, like near, near the exam time. Huh? Two weeks, three weeks for your exam study time. You sit at home and I want A grades, A grades, A grades, A grades, A grades. Are you going to get an A grade? No. Because that is the result. They give you time to work on the causes. Don't worry about the result. Because the result is a manifestation. Because it is an effect of causes. The only things you need to concern yourselves with is the or other causes. So if you want to become a king of hearts, if you want to become an arahant, look at what stuff they are made of. They are bodhisattvas. <laughs> they all are. They started with the parami, upaparami and the paramattaparami. At, at one point, initially they were ready, prepared to give up their comforts Things that they would, they used to gather, collect and keep around themselves to keep, live a comfortable life. First of all, they gave, they gave that away. Because they realized they're suffering. It's not my suffering or your suffering, it's suffering. So if suffering is, can be healed by taking this, please take this. Yeah? This is the mindfulness I want you to be in. Not your suffering, my suffering. Because the moment you say your suffering, my suffering, that is suffering again. So then you can't say your suffering, you'll have to say suffering, suffering. And then my suffering is suffering, suffering. And then our suffering is, again, suffering, suffering. <laughs> Isn't it? Because if you say your suffering, my suffering, then you haven't really understood suffering. There's no such thing called your suffering, my suffering. What there is, is 
suffering. Suffering does not belong to anybody. Suffering belongs to ignorance and attachment. That's what suffering belongs to. Suffering belongs to Mara. Suffering belongs to Jati. Suffering belongs to ignorance. So there's no your suffering and my suffering. There's just suffering. So once you once you begin to give up your comforts, you're prepared to share. You know, remember the other day we are, I, I think there was a bottle or something and I asked, there's a pen. I asked you, you know, what did who did this pen come into this world for? Hmm? Who did this pen come into this world for? You shouldn't have an answer to that. But you might put your name on it hmm? and then call it my pen. If it was your pen, why did you have to put your name on it? <laughs> huh? Think about it. Do you know when people get married, they write a marriage certificate? Hmm? And they say, you are mine. Look, it says on the sheet of paper. <laughs> huh? And then they say, we are soulmates. If you are soulmates, why do you need a piece of paper to prove it? If proof is in the paper, then it's not in the person. Huh? So if proof is in the in your writing on the pen, then it's not in the pen. That's why you had to write it. So this pen didn't come into this world for anybody. This pen came into this world to write for anyone who wishes to write. For anyone who needs to write. That's what this pen came here for. Not for you to write or for me to write. Therefore, there, is not, there isn't a my pen or a your pen or our pen. There's no such pen. There's just a pen to write. Yeah? In much the same way, this is suffering. <laughs> there's no your suffering or my suffering. And likewise, there's no your Nibbana and my Nibbana. Where there is no suffering. Voidness of suffering is Nibbana. See Nibbana? This is 20% Nibbana. You know? Because this is Rupa. Rupa is 20% Nibbana. Most of the other 80. Vedana, Sanya, Sankara and Vinya. All together that is Nibbana. So in this body of yours, in this package that you say is yourself, what is it? 100% Nibbana. So where are you going looking for it then? It's right at home. Why are you going to Singapore looking for it then? Huh? Where are you going around the world looking for Nibbana? Why are you getting on a rocket to go to the moon to look for Nibbana? Why are you waiting for the next birth to look for Nibbana? Why are you waiting for Maitri Buddha to look for Nibbana? Nibbana is there. See, 100% Nibbana. 100% Nibbana. It is ignorance and attachment that ruins the whole thing. Therefore, suffering doesn't belong to you. Suffering belongs to whom? It's not to whom? To ignorance and attachment. That is what suffering belongs to. That is why when you read ignorance and attachment, they take everything that belongs to them with it. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. If I ask you to leave this room now, you will leave with everything that belongs to you, right? Hmm? Hopefully less your children. (laughs) 
So you leave with everything that belongs to you. In the same way, when you rid the mind of ignorance and attachment, it will leave with everything that belongs to it. But it won't leave with Rupa. It will leave the Rupa. And it will leave the Vedana. It will leave the Sanya. leaves the Sankara and leaves the Vinyana. Meaning, they don't belong to ignorance and attachment. That is you. That is natural. So to get that point, get to that, you know, once you understand this, now you realize there's not a your Nibbana or a my Nibbana and there's not a your suffering and my suffering. There's your suffering and there's the void of suffering. That void of suffering, the absence of suffering, is Nibbana. So you can't create Nibbana. You just have to discover it. You don't have to explore the Nibbana. It's there. It's there. You just have to uncover it. It's there. So to do that, and to, once you've understood that, you realize, then it's not someone else's suffering or my suffering that takes you know, precedence. It's not like, he, you know, if I'm happy, I don't care what other people are. That's nonsense. Now, you know, now you've got to understand, that's all nonsense. If you're saying that, then you haven't understood the Dhamma one bit. And if you say, I'm going to sacrifice myself for others, again, there's a lack of understanding there. Now, you've got to be very, very intelligent to understand what I'm saying here. Because just a few moments ago, I said, you know, sacrifice yourself for others. And now I'm saying, if you're thinking about sacrificing yourself for others, then again, ignorance is at play. What I'm trying to really say is, there is no you, me, he, they, it, others, and so on here. There's just Nibbana and suffering. Right? Once you read, once you read suffering, there's only Nibbana left. That's why, <clears throat> when you and I, or when you and someone else, you have a problem... If you are able to see this, folks, if you are able to really penetrate this veil of ignorance and, and look at this truth, when you identify that, now it doesn't matter whose Nibbana is achieved at this point because there is no such feeling of whose Nibbana, it's just Nibbana. Then it doesn't matter who gets the first meal, who takes the first bite. Because if there's hunger, hunger is hunger. It's not his hunger, my hunger, hunger is hunger. Hunger is when the stomach aches with the lack of food. But the world doesn't understand this. Therefore, people will sometimes will sometimes even destroy crops and vegetation and surplus of food when the other half of the world is hungry. Because they'll say, unless we do that, we can't maintain the price of food. We can't maintain a competitive environment hmm? and we can't keep the food to, we, we can't have the food reach those, those of us. So to do that, they have to dump some of that into the oceans. <laughs> Funny stuff, isn't it? Uh. Even that you got to look at them as a mother, as a child, with compassion. See, hurt people, hurt people. So really, there are no such things called bad people in this world. There are only hurt people. That's why they hurt people. When you recognize that, when you identify and understand that, and you really feel for them, 
now no one can hurt you because hurting is not something that someone does to you hurting is something that happens within themselves to themselves that's what you need to spot hurting is self made and self inflicted <clears throat> i don't mean the physical hurt that can be done but again if you ask me why that, why did that happen because once upon a time in a far away land huh? <laughs> isn't it yeah given you shall get so what you're getting now is because of what you gave because you were hurt and you inflicted hurt on yourself how by being angry and then you wanted to get out of that you wanted to vent that then therefore you took it out on someone else now that's just doing a full turn it's just done a 360 on you that's what's happened so have an abundance of compassion in your heart carry that as your you know as your you should be a symbol you know that should be your what's the word hmm your vehicle yes metta should be your vehicle hmm have that as your crest hmm wear it on your on your shoulder on your chest be an ambassador of metta it won't be seen from the outside because it's nothing to show from the outside it's about that abundance of compassion that extension of compassion and 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 loving kindness not to this person that person the other person my son my daughter my father my mother mm-hmm. put all that to aside it's about to any ailing heart any ailing heart may all hearts that ail be free of ail be free of ailment be a walking remedy to ailing hearts that is what you need to be that's why you know now i'm so sorry should we should you know just roll off your tongue like water of a leaf without a problem that shouldn't be a problem at all now it becomes difficult when your ego gets in the way ego is against self the manifestation of self and when self comes in now that has to take center stage now you have to protect and preserve that so anything that undermines this is going to hurt you so keep metta karuna mudita and upeksha start with metta the rest will come to you start with metta huh? start with metta so anyone can do that even the young children can do it start with metta make that the way you practice what you learn in the dhamma class what you come and learn here as a dhamma make metta your application of that dhamma be an ambassador of metta be a king of hearts that is what makes you a great person remember success is not measured by what you have achieved rather it is measured by who you become in the pursuit of what you go after that is what your success ought to be so don't make arahanthood your objective okay do try and understand what i'm trying to tell you here your greatness your success should not be the object of your pursuit it's who you become in your pursuit of it that is success that's why you can't make 
a rich man, a poor man, by taking away all his money. Because he is a rich man on the inside. Take it away today, six months later, he'll make twice what you stole from him. That's a rich man. So, don't become another hand. Become another hand. It's not the target. It's not the goal. It's who you become in the process. That, is, that should be your greatness. In that process, you work on this. You work on your attitudes. You work on your compassion. You work on who you are to others. That is what it is. The King of Hearts. Right, time's up for today. So, next week, we don't have a sermon, but what we have is the result of sermons. <laughs> huh? So, next week, we'll, have, we'll see the results of sermons. 16 times that. I do hope you can all join and pass on your blessings to them if you are available. I don't mean you have to be here, but you know, if you are. It would mean a lot to them to have their family with them. I, you know, our Anagarika Mahathir, I, 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 I say this hand on heart, really. They relate more to you than they do sometimes to their, their natural nuclear families. Because sometimes, you know, the people that they spend time with, they don't, they don't understand them anymore. Their brothers and sisters, they don't understand them anymore. Sometimes even their mothers don't understand them anymore. Their fathers don't understand them anymore. Their children don't understand them anymore. Because they think, this, this, what's happened to these people? They're like aliens. I don't understand you anymore. And then they just give up on them. In vain. Because they could have gotten a lot more from them than an eye. They could have gotten a heart. But it's you who understand them. You know, come there to get something. To get something, come there to give something. Give them your blessings. Give them your well wishes. And wish on the bottom of your hearts. You know, May suffering be conquered. May suffering be eradicated. For all. Not them or me. For all. Okay. So with that, we will end today's talk by doing a transfer of merits. Let us take a moment then to transfer the merits that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the noble triple gem, enchanting pirit, listening to the Dhamma, and engaging in various meritorious deeds today. First and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in the receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching. And with immense gratitude, let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasikas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin come rain or shine. Let us transfer these merits to Guru Swami Mohanse as well as all the teachers resident at this monastery, the Anagarikas and Anagarika communities attached to the monastery. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits and to express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha be that by transliterating these sermons, sharing them out with others, or inviting others to join them, and may to the power of these mates, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May, by the power of these mates, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, 
fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also transfer merits we have acquired to our devotees, friends of the monastery who, for the sake of merits, continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery, to those who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes, and medicines, as well as those who pass down their know how and continue to extend their well wishes. And may, through the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Let us also take a moment to answer merits to our mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employees and employees, and to all those who have helped us, supported us, assisted us along the way. And by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles through their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us take a moment to transfer merits to the devas and brahmas, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Samadhisasana. Let us transfer these merits to our guardian deities who, who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. May it the power of these merits, they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sad, sad, sad. Let us take a moment to transfer merits to our ancestors who have predeceased us, to all those who have been our families, friends, and acquaintances in this infinitely long journey in samsara, and to those who have helped, supported, and assisted us along the way. Let us take a moment to transfer merits to the armed, members of the armed forces as well as the police force who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nations. And may all those who lost their lives in the war be their friend or foe, rejoice in the merits we have acquired today. Let us transfer merits to those who have lost their lives in natural calamities, such as tsunamis, earthquakes, landslides, pandemics, forest fires, and so on. Reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been friends and family to us in this long journey of Sansara. Let us take a moment to transfer the merits that we have acquired to them. May to the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the warful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sad, sad, sad. Let us all resolve that may to the power and blessings of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of Arahants on this blessed land. And finally, may you and I, and everyone who's make, helped make this program a success, become an Arahatun Mahanse and Arahat Teranin Mahanse in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all.